0: KYW original podcasts.
1: For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: The coronavirus
1: pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Human challenge trials, or HCTs, are studies in which people volunteer to be infected with a pathogen like the coronavirus in hopes that doing so will speed up development of a vaccine. In our first podcast on this, I talked to Rutgers bioethicist Dr. Nir Eyal. He's director for the new Center for Population-Level Bioethics. He co-authored an article in the Journal of Infectious Diseases calling for controlled human challenge trials. If you want to listen to that, you can find it on radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for KYW In-Depth. So Dr. Yall's article prompted Josh Morrison and some other advocates to create OneDaySooner.org, which they describe as a hub for people to learn about and advocate and volunteer for HCTs. And we'll get to him in just a few minutes. I also talked to Mabel Rosenheck. She's a scholar, professor, and historian from Philly who would consider being a volunteer. She signed up on OneDaySooner.org. dot org. Let's start with Mabel. So, Mabel, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Could you begin by
2: telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Mabel Rosenheck. I live in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm 35. And I'm a uh, public historian and independent scholar. So I teach as an adjunct at Temple University. I work at a museum in North Philly. And then I also do some freelance work teaching and writing.
1: So you are willing to volunteer as a test subject, basically, for vaccines and human challenge trials. Why? Why did you decide that that be something you would want to do?
2: Well, I should clarify that I have expressed interest in, in, in volunteering. So there's a lot of I have a lot of concerns. Um, with how a trial would go forward and what my, and what that participation would look like. Um, so that means the conditions under which it would happen, and it also means uh, what kind of compensation in terms of um, not necessarily getting paid to do it, but um, getting, you know, if I'm not working for six weeks, <laughs> somebody has to pay my rent. Uh, and then also with what happens afterwards in terms of health care, because there could be long term consequences. And so I say that in part because, you know, the organization that um, that is signing up volunteers one day sooner is not just about advocating for human challenge trials, but really about advocating for the volunteers and making sure that they're taken care of and that these kinds of trials happen in an ethical manner.
1: So why even entertain this, though? Why are you thinking about this?
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, when I saw the call and I, you know, I I saw this idea, my immediate reaction was I could do that. Um, I have have certain privileges. I'm young. I'm healthy. I have, you know, advantages that not everybody has. So it felt like a contribution that I could make, Um, again, that not everybody could. could. And as a historian, you know, I really think that what I do is vital um, to this moment and to how this crisis is unfurling, that we really need to be thinking critically about humans as well as about disease um, and, well, you know, and those things in concert, but I'm not making the kind of contribution that you know, doctors and nurses are. So this felt like um, you know, I was thinking about those two things and thinking about this being a really material contribution that I could make, that I could use those advantages I have of being young and healthy um, to make a difference.
1: I'm just curious, as a, as a historian, have you studied other um, epidemics or pandemics?
2: I have not. I've been digging into some of this stuff more on the testing end um, um, since I started getting involved with One Day Sooner. Um, otherwise, I've done some work in the history of science, um, and I do a lot of work. I often describe what I do as sort of the history of knowledge, of looking at how we know the things we know and how we, how we think about the world, how those things have emerged over time which has a lot to do with, um, with the idea of, uh, particip- of how we think of the common good and how we think of ourselves as part of a society. Explain so much about who you are and why this would appeal to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, you know, before you hit on this a little bit, this is really risky. You would be, if everything panned out and you were comfortable with the way the trial was going to be mm-hmm. conducted, you're volunteering to be infected with a really serious virus that in some cases Mm -hmm. is deadly. Mm -hmm.
2: So, I mean, the first thing to say is that the risk is pretty minimal to somebody who's young and healthy, and especially to somebody who's young and healthy and is being taken care of in a facility. You know, we would be isolated somewhere else and we would have medical care. You know, think about I'm living alone. Um, If I got sick and I had nobody necessarily checking in on me every day, you know, if I was if I got really sick, how how would that unfold? As opposed to if I was in a hospital and I was taken care of, that's a different scenario, which isn't to say that the risk is less, but it's to be a reminder that there's sort of larger larger circumstances under which anybody might get sick.
1: And you would be isolated in a facility for this mm-hmm.
2: entire time.
1: Yeah. And they yeah. are promising state-of-the-art care, you know, monitoring medical care and all of that.
2: Well, so the, ta- the trials haven't been designed yet, and nothing is nothing is certain in terms of going forward. But in terms of um, in terms of designing an ethical trial, which is certainly this would have to be because this is a big risk, and there are you know mechanisms in place to make sure that, that um, medical trials are safe. Ethicists agree that that would have to be part of of how it would happen, both in terms of monitoring for scientific reasons and then also for the ep- ethics and the safety of participants.
1: Have you told your family and friends you're thinking about this?
2: Yeah. So um, when I talked to my sister, she had this the same reaction of like, "Well, actually, if you were to get really sick, it might be safer to be in a hospital and have all that care." Um, and then I also talked to my dad about it, and he was. You know, we actually talked about it in context of thinking about scientific literacy and statistical literacy, because there's so many numbers, you know, flying around these days, and thinking about how people are making sense of those and whether they're making sort of accurate sense of those or how they're reacting to that. And this is a decision that is very risky, but if you think about it statistically and you think about the actual numbers, the actual chance of getting sick, getting very sick, and dying, those statistical probabilities are pretty small. So he was sympathetic with the decision, uh, with the idea. Um, For those reasons, uh, he's a physician himself. Uh, but of course, then a few days later, when I was talking about it again, he said, "But I don't actually want you to do this." <laughs> so I think he would be support. I think he would be supportive if I did. He would be supportive of me if I made that decision. But as a parent, he still doesn't want me to get infected. First intentionally infected with the virus. That's to say, the scientist versus the dad. Exactly, exactly. So he reassured me a few days later that uh, he was still worried.
1: Yeah, two totally different conversations, yep. are How do you think you would handle that? I'm thinking, you know, if you were in an uh, a facility, you would be isolated. Mm-hmm. It would be, I guess, as controlled as it could be. You, would, you know exactly what you're, mm-hmm. kind of what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. How do you think, like, what are your thoughts about that being holed up for six weeks and, and being like while you're being infected with a virus?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly like one of the thoughts I've had in terms of what it would be like is like how much contact would I have with the other individual participants and how much contact would I have with doctors and nurses just in terms of a social environment, which, I you know, I just don't know the answer to. I don't know the answer. I can't imagine I would be isolated in, you know, a white box, but... That is that is sort of a material question that would come up, and then my other sort of back of my mind question is: I'm a runner, so I run every day, and like, can I have a treadmill in this in my room with me? I don't know if I could or I couldn't, but like, you know, having something to do and something that way that that way that I really is a big way of which I'm coping with everything now. What would that be like if I didn't have that? You know,
1: it's it's an interesting thought, isn't it? that So you're going to be, if you did this, you would be holed up with a bunch of other people who Mm -hmm. are all infected. So you would think that you guys might have more social interaction among yourselves (laughs) than those of us out in the general public right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You could have happy hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Mabel, is there anything else that I, you know, that I haven't touched on that you might be thinking about or concerns that you have or thoughts that you have about this?
2: I, don't see. I mean, the main thing that, you know, I think that sets me apart and the reason why, um, you know, I have had the particular conversations with the organization that I have is because I'm not a scientist. You know, I'm a historian. And I think those values of critical thinking that I teach as a historian, that I teach in the humanities really has a lot in common and has a lot. Um, to do with the decision to participate in something as risky as this in terms of being able to look clearly at the situation and consider both the individual relationship to it and then also this larger social relationship to, um, to what a vaccine would mean um, and what having a vaccine sooner would mean. Um, and so I think those connections are really important in terms of my experience and my thinking, but then also in terms of how we're thinking about a challenge trial and how we're thinking about vaccines in terms of society at large.
1: Mabel, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yep, no problem. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, stay well. And um, (laughs) if this does happen and you do get picked, let's please stay in touch. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Mabel. All right, take care. Bye-bye.
0: So my name is Josh Morrison, and I am one of the founders of One Day Sooner.
1: So Josh, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Can you uh, start out by telling me why you created this, this hub, as you call it?
0: I got involved and helped start One Day Sooner at the end of March. And it was after reading an article by Miral and Mark Lipsitch and Peter Smith that said that you could potentially speed up vaccine development for COVID-19 by as many as three or four months by doing a human challenge trial which involves deliberately uh, exposing volunteers to infection as a way of testing a vaccine uh, more quickly among a smaller population than you would need in normal trials. And challenge trials have been used for a number of different diseases. They have helped develop vaccines for typhoid and uh, cholera and malaria. And the drug Tamiflu was actually developed with with challenge trials. And personally, you know, when I learned about this, I felt like, oh, wow, you could you could all be done with this month sooner. That's that's pretty great. And, you know, I thought that the level of risk, you know, based on my knowledge of it, it was you know, definitely significant. But compared to the benefit, it seemed like, you know, this is something that people in general would want to do. And so it was a good idea um, and a good policy. And then I thought, you know, is it something that I would want to participate in um, if I were eligible? And I thought, yes, I, I'm I'm young, I'm 34, I'm in good health, I don't have any kids, I don't have any dependents. It seems like I would be able to do this and be in a, a good position. And so, if you know, if I'm able to do it and I think it's a good idea, you know, why should I leave it to someone else? Why not um, be? Why, why shouldn't it be me? So that, that's what got you know me wanting to participate myself. I also felt like. I have this experience. Uh, my day job is doing advocacy work for living organ donation at a group called Weightless Zero, so advocating on behalf of mostly kidney donors, which which I'm a kidney donor myself. And I felt like that experience and the skills I built there could be really relevant for building a, an organization that represents people who want to participate in challenge trials, and that could be quite useful because I think that would you know that, that representing this view could really contribute to kind of the ethical discussion around this to kind of build urgency to use challenge trials if they're useful. And I also felt like, you know, the best way of managing the risk to volunteers is giving volunteers agency and power and autonomy over the process so that it's their choice and they can help uh, manage this as well as possible so that it goes forward if it's going to be useful and doesn't go forward if the risks aren't going to uh, uh, be worth the benefits. Are you worried about personal risk? Sure. I mean, I think, of, of course, you know, I think anyone worries about, you know, getting COVID-19 and, you know, what would be the, the risk, you know, both, both the risk um, from a, you know, obviously a perspective that people, even young, healthy people can, can die of this disease and also, you know, potentially, you know, serious long-term health issues that we're not yet certain of. Um, and, and, you know, just generally, you know, no one, no one wants to get COVID-19, least of all me. So certainly I, I worry about that. But on the other hand, if this were to go forward and I'd be given, you know, the best medical care and monitored constantly, and so, you know, it's definitely a risk. But I also felt like if I could be part of something that could save tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands or more lives, that risk could be worth it to me to be part of this, this really important service to humanity.
1: You know, when I spoke to Dr. Rial I wondered how many people would volunteer to be infected with a deadly illness. <laughs> and uh, it turns out quite a lot. Um, I just checked yeah. out your website this morning and I was pretty astounded. What's your response been like?
0: It been absolutely inspiring and, and really humbling, I guess. Um, yeah, that right now, as I look on our spreadsheet, we have uh, 24,334 registrations and it's from more than a hundred countries. And, you know, and I, and I get to read, I obviously haven't gotten to read all, you know, 24,000 of the responses, but I get to read the responses and I try to read some each day and they're just incredibly moving and incredibly inspiring. And so it's, it's really amazing that so many people from all over the world and all over America want to be helping and want to be giving of themselves and be fighting for a better world and a better outcome.
1: And what are, can you speak at all to what what some of those responses have been? What are the ones that have kind of stood out to you?
0: Yeah, this one really, really connects with me. So um, this one said, I was involved with a head-on collision with a tractor trailer in 2014. I sustained immense damages resulting in losing half my left leg among numerous other issues. My life has been drastically transformed and not necessarily for the better I feel. This would give me a chance to get my sense of self back, to help and protect others, especially my 13-year-old daughter. It would mean the world to me to be able to do something that matters to help others. I'm not really concerned about any risks to myself involved. Please consider me. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, and, and so it's, it's um, yeah, just, there's just so many that are, you know, that, that one really stuck out, but there's just a number of them. Um, that stick out to me and that just are, you know, just really moving and, and really bring me to tears. I would say some of the common themes we see based just on reading some of the responses and, and not formal data yet, it seems to be the case that volunteers are, are young and good health, probably mostly 20 to 35. There, there, are, there are middle-aged volunteers are even elderly volunteers. We've had volunteers sign up in their 80s even. Uh, but generally young and good health, generally seemingly well-educated, probably usually kind of young professionals or people in graduate school or with graduate degrees. Um, There's definitely a noticeable number of uh, veterans. And then also, I think a lot of people, um, probably more than veterans, uh, have some sort of public health or biomedical or biotech sort of background. That's another feature. And I think in terms of people's motivation, I think a lot of people want to protect people they care about. People also, I think, have a real desire to be contributing and to be active and feel empowered by helping fight the coronavirus instead of feeling passive and, and demoralized and, and defeated, which is how I felt before I started working on One Day Senior.
1: It gives you some power. It makes you feel
0: empowered. That's right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Should the volunteers be paid?
0: we think of that as kind of a secondary consideration. And we think that the first step is figuring out, you know, should we have challenge trials in society? What should they look like? And then as long as volunteers are treated fairly, you know, we, we don't really, we, we just want to make sure that volunteers are treated fairly and that people, you know, aren't doing this primarily for monetary reasons. So we think that is, is mostly a question for tomorrow. I think it's very obvious that at the very least, you would need to have reimbursement for any expenses like lost wages or travel or things like that. And then also you would need to have insurance and compensation and long-term follow-up and care for anyone who had a, a serious illness serious adverse event or, um, you know, God forbid if someone, someone dies, um, there would need to be, you know, insurance and, and compensation for, for those things that harms and materialize. I think that's the bare minimum. But like I said, as long as people are treated fairly, we think it's, it's really not the, the key question about this.
1: So who would be able to volunteer? You mentioned, mm-hmm. I was surprised when you said you had elderly people uh, volunteering because they're mm-hmm. at the high end of the, you know, a uh, uh, risk assessment of getting severe mm-hmm. COVID and, 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 and high mortality rates.
0: Right. And so, so just because people have, signed, have, have registered and signed up on our site as interested in volunteering doesn't mean they'll they'll necessarily be eligible. There's a number of different stages to determine eligibility. Uh, that would have to take place before someone can actually participate in the trial. And different experts in bioethicists have been talking about different standards. I mean all the standards are basically that you expect people participating in these trials to be young and in good health. Something like twenty to thirty, twenty to forty, uh, and in in good health, you know non-smoker doesn't have any any other medical conditions. That would be you know roughly what we would we would expect. Um, but it's not set in stone yet. And, you know, I'd also say from what I think the standard, you know, kind of the the broader standard should be, every increment of risk should produce an additional, you know, scientific value or or social value. And that that value should grow the more the risks grow. People who are 34 should only be eligible. If the risks are going to be higher than someone who's 30, let's say, you know, I would love to participate if that's going to give us better data about the value of the vaccine, but I also think, you know, for example, if someone's 50, that the amount of value and extra data of having them in the study needs to be very, 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 very high in order to justify that extra risk. And there's no reason at this point to think that someone over 40 would meet that standard based on what we know now.
1: So there's so much about this disease we don't know. Every day, mm-hmm. every week, mm-hmm. it seems like we're we're learning more things and we're learning about kind of the, the many ways that this disease seems to be affecting people and harming the body in other ways. And you acknowledge that on your website, the statistics are far from certain right now, and you were just talking about risk. And so I'm wondering, how do you make that risk-benefit assessment when so much about this is still unknown?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, obviously it's something that we're learning more about every day. I think that one thing to realize is that there's some preparatory steps that have to happen before you can run a challenge trial. Uh, The first step needs to be the production of the virus under safe and reliable conditions, something called good manufacturing practices or GMP. So by the time a challenge trial actually happens, we're going to know more than, than we do now. That said, you know, people take decisions like this under uncertainty all the time. So for example, when healthcare workers are uh, helping patients with COVID-19. The healthy workers don't know the exact risk of their, their own infection, um, but they, they do it anyway because it's an important public service. Or when people sign up for military service or sign up to be firefighters or police officers, they might not actually you know fully know the, the risk, but it's still something that we want people to do. You know, We do have a decent amount of data about COVID-19 so far. And based on what we do know already, and again, it's subject to change and we're learning more every day, our sense is that for the the young and healthy people who would participate in a trial, those risks, to the best of our knowledge, are roughly comparable to pregnancy or kidney donation. So those are significant risks. No one's trying to downplay the risks, but they're also risks that we commonly let people take. And just to give some numbers about that, if you look at the infection fatality rate, our best understanding of that in China, for example, for people that are 20 to 29, both healthy and unhealthy, the chance of dying of COVID-19 if you get infected is estimated at about one in 3,300, which happens to be the same risk of death in kidney donation. For pregnancy in the United States, the risk of death is half of that, it's about one in 6,500. And so that's also remember that risk is in healthy and unhealthy people, but challenge trial volunteers would only be, be healthy and if you look, for example, in New York City, in deaths ages 18 to 45, more than 80% of those deaths are people who had a preexisting condition. So again, there's more that we need to know about the risks of this disease. But based on what we do know, the risk of participating in this trial is meaningful and significant, but also on a level of things like pregnancy or kidney donation that we commonly let people do.
1: If you were to do this, how much quicker do you think we would have a vaccine? And mm-hmm. then how many, you know, by extension, how many lives do you think would be saved?
0: Both of those things are, are uncertain. There's a lot that remains to be found. And so I would say it's kind of, well, let me give you kind of a, a few different scenarios, a kind of optimistic, uh, maybe a, a realistic and, and a kind of minimum and sort of what those would look like. So the optimistic scenario is that you would save something like three months with a challenge trial. And the basic idea of that, I don't, you know, the the Mirial piece proposes replacing the standard studies of uh, effectiveness in vaccines with a challenge trial altogether. I'm not sure if you can fully replace them. Those standard studies of effectiveness involve usually, you know, thousands of patients taking place over at least half a year. And a challenge trial involves something more like 100 patients and can take place over just a few months. So that way you could you could save a few months. And I think even if you're not fully replacing that, that, quote, phase three trial, that larger uh, study of effectiveness, you still can get this useful information about does this vaccine work three or four months sooner? And when you do that, um, that can allow you to make manufacturing decisions that can, can effectively speed up when people get the vaccine by multiple months. I would say that, you know, my target, what I'm hoping to get out of these, if they end up being useful, is something like a month. If we were able to save a month in vaccine development, I'll give you kind of two basic estimates or basic numbers, a really conservative estimate and, you know, my kind of back of the envelope, imprecise best guess. So the conservative estimate is just to say each day about a thousand people around the world die from flu typically, uh, in, a, in a typical year, even if we find ourselves in a year or two years when the vaccine is being deployed, coronavirus is only as bad, only affecting, uh, causing as many deaths as flu. Even that would mean that a month uh, of uh, vaccine could save 30,000 lives, which would be really quite incredible. But obviously, you know, the coronavirus is, is worse than flu and the, we don't have a natural immunity to it. And so, you know, just to to throw some numbers around, let's say that you thought that one in six people in the world were going to get infected by the coronavirus each year. And that having a vaccine would save even just 0.2% of those people from dying. That would mean that a vaccine would save about 7,000 lives per day and about 200,000 lives per month. So or potentially even, you know, kind of half a million lives or more if it saved multiple months. And so that's why we call the name of the organization One Day Sooner, because we think that if these challenge trials have a clear likelihood of bringing a vaccine even one day sooner, that represents thousands of lives that should be, that would be saved. And we think they should go forward on that basis if there were that clear likelihood.
1: There are a couple manufacturers who now are in phase two and look like they're ready to move into phase three. Have Have mm-hmm. you heard from any of them? Does has any have any of the makers expressed interest in doing a challenge trial?
0: So basically, like I said, it would take time to prepare a challenge trial, and you know the earliest that a challenge trial is going to be ready is in the fall. You know, Moderna uh, just announced they're going to want to do phase three studies in July. If that materializes, I think it's unlikely that a challenge trial would be ready in time for those, that particular vaccine candidate. But, I, but so we have had some conversations in general terms with uh, a few different vaccine manufacturers. One of the vac- manufacturers that we talked to was very interested in the idea of using human challenge trials. They were a little bit worried about you know, their company being the face of challenge trials, but they thought scientifically it would be quite valuable Another I manufacturer said, no, they're not interested, and they, they, they weren't planning on doing challenge trials. And then finally, um, I spoke to uh, Tal Zek, the chief medical officer at Moderna, uh, about a month ago. Um, and I can talk about this because he's talked about this conversation publicly, too. You know, in his view, he was somewhat skeptical. He had ethical concerns. Um, but he also felt like if the the National Institute of Health or another kind of trusted trial list, you know, the provider of these challenge trials, we're, we're running challenge trials that it would be a hard thing to say no to if that option existed. So we, we've had some, some theoretical and kind of general discussions, but the, the, our main focus right now is getting the, the viral production started so that we can get challenge trials ready at the earliest possible opportunity if they do prove useful.
1: All right, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And, and please keep us posted if you 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 know, if you guys are successful and end up getting a, one of these uh, challenge trials going. We'd love to hear about it.
0: Definitely, we'll do.
1: This is the second in a few podcasts we're doing on HCTs. After hearing from people who think this is a good idea, I wanted to check in with a scientist who is in the thick of developing a coronavirus vaccine to see what he thinks about this. Is it something he's considering doing to speed up the process? You can find the podcast I did with him on Radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for KYW In-Depth.